0: So as people are still walking in, uh, my first question is, how clear is your jar? And have you noticed that, that sometimes even in the intention of just settling, that there are things that will uh, cause turbulence? And then all, all we need to do is really not do that much, just for it to settle. And, um, and there are times in which, even in the retreat, you know, when things get <laughs> difficult, the instructions never change. No matter, you know, no matter what retreat that you go on, no matter um, what teacher that you meet, the basic instructions are really the same. It's kind of interesting that way. But how they actually meet our lives becomes really different. It becomes, that becomes the material of our practice. And so, um, as we enter into this retreat, um, there's a little bit of feedback that I can hear, I think. Um, there's an article in the New York Times about, about someone who went on, a writer who went on a retreat and it sounds to me as if he went to Insight Meditation Society in, in Massachusetts. Um, but see if you relate to any of his experience. Meditation retreats, at this place at least, are no picnic. You don't follow your bliss. You learn not to follow your bliss. And you learn this arduously. If at the end you feel like leaving in Shangri-La, that's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. (laughs) We spent five and a half hours a day in sitting meditation. You actually spent six. Five and a half hours a day in walking meditation, you actually spent four. By day three, this is day two, I was feeling achy, far from nirvana, and really, really sick of the place. I didn't like that I had a morning yogi jam. I don't like the food, and I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces, walking around serenely like they knew something that I didn't know, which it turns out they did. What I hated above all was I wasn't succeeding as a meditator. Now you're not supposed to think of succeeding at meditating. You're not supposed to blame yourself for failing and blah blah blah. (laughs) I love it that a New York Times writer was reduced to write the words blah (laughs) blah blah by a meditation retreat. (laughs) And it really speaks to how quickly we have an opportunity to see how the mind works. The blah 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 of the mind even in this really amazing pastoral setting that that you folks have created over the last decade or more, with a staff that is so supportive, with teachings to support us, and still the mind has a life of its own. But we begin to see clearly as we begin to settle how the mind works. And we see things that are usually hidden from us because of this, because of all of the tumultuous stimuli that that comes into necessarily our lives every day. And we realize how much in this life we actually take for granted, that 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 the invitation of this practice is really to begin to notice things that have gone so unseen and yet are so fundamental to our life and who we are. We, we so take our, uh, our breath for granted. We don't, we don't value it until... Until that capacity is taken away from us, or or whether there's illness or um, an obstacle to it. We take our ability to move in the world for granted unless an injury or an impairment comes up. We take our, in this culture, we so take our ability to feed our hunger when there are so many beings in this world that do not have that ability. And in this retreat, we begin to have that opportunity to recondition this unconsciousness and really practice a life that sees the preciousness, that, that sees the value, and sees the, worth, the worthiness of living itself. The Buddha said, Living 24 hours with mindfulness is more precious than living a hundred years without it. Another way that we actually don't see this preciousness is how we respond to the moment as it arises. Because our conditioned nature is, is when something arises in our life, we push it away because we don't like it. Or we pull it towards us or want more of it because it's pleasant. And the third option is is that if it's not that exciting, if it's kind of neutral, we ignore it. This is actually a manipulation of our direct experience. It's pushing, pulling or forgetting and this manipulation can get really exhausting and frustrating because it is not our true lived experience we create what we think our life should be like and all of a sudden we're living a thought instead of our reality and this is where sometimes you hear that that phrase thought creates reality this is where I relate to that phrase in the sense that we are living a thought. It's not the content of the thought that creates our reality. It's the, it's the nature of the thought. The invitation is to go beyond what we think we know of our lives to, in a sense, get out of the way and explore the life that's already being lived, that's already unfolding in front of us. And we start really simply we start simply noticing the details of our experience, which is why the initial invitations are are so simple around the breath or the body, those things that are happening and unfolding in each moment. And as we move through the retreat, as we move through the practice, we begin to expand from the breath to the body, And we begin to expand to feelings, emotions, thoughts, decisions that we have to make. We begin to expand to the full range of our experience. The entire spectrum of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That's the intention. That's the trajectory of awareness. It's not to move through your job focused on your breath 24-7 and sort of be detached from the world. But it's really to be fully engaged in whatever arises. This meeting the moment for what it is, without pushing it away or pulling it towards you, without that manipulation, I'm wondering if you can feel that as the experience of kindness. That that in of itself is gentle when we do this. And then watch the next moment arise. Why is this kind of mindfulness or awareness, or paying attention important? So it it really has become um, so um, vibrant for me because I have a I have a um, newly born granddaughter. She's less than a year old, and her experience, I see it so directly that her experience of love doesn't happen unless I'm paying attention. When we pay attention, we are actually offering profound love. That, that, um, uh, that in a very real sense, we can say that we love we can say that that and we can even feel that love but unless we're paying attention it's not felt so i you know i told you i'm a visual person right so i bring these things and so what if i were to check my email while i'm doing this dharma talk <laughs> you know and i'm noticing that i have 3 new emails but you know check clock it for yourself when I'm not paying attention to you when I'm supposed to be how is it that you feel in this moment? This is what we're attempting to do in terms of cultivating, strengthening that capacity to be mindful for, of our own moment to moment experience. <coughs> we are actually offering ourselves this profound experience of self-love. And it may not seem like it to you because it may not be congruent what you think love is, what are concepts of love. But each moment that we are mindful, we are not manipulating, not changing, but we are accepting with a wholeheartedness, what is arising in our life. We look for love in so many places. I don't even have to say this because there are songs that do. <laughs> right? We look for love in so many other places other than right here, right now, with ourselves. as we direct our loving attention to our own experience, whether it's with our body, or our hearts, or our minds, noticing all of that that arises without judgment, without without needing to change it, even if judgment were to arise. The invitations are, is it possible not to judge the judgment? And in that way, in that, in that application of mindfulness, in that application of love, we begin to recondition our pattern of, of this self-critic, this, um, this self-judgmental mind. And we actually provide ourselves with this corrective experience. So loving kindness or loving friendliness of which we've started the practice um, called metta in the Buddhist tradition is so woven into the fabric of sati or mindfulness. Mindfulness is the kindness in, form, in the form of generosity, the, the offering of your full attention the, the offering of the fullness of your love of this moment. It is the kindness in, in the form of forgiveness because mindfulness is in the present. You have to let go of the sorrows or the injuries of the past. You have to let go of any worries centered around the future. It has to be in the present. Mindfulness is kindness in the form of gratitude. Going back to that poem that I read in one of the meditations around just noticing how incredible this day is. And as we fully open to the preciousness of each day, each moment, there is an awe that arises. The nature of our experience And mindfulness is kindness in the form of compassion. Meeting our sorrows, whether it's the 10,000 sorrows or whether it's the one sorrow. And as as we meet those moments of distress, it's simply being with, accepting with what is arising. Not pushing it away, not denying it, not repressing it. It's like... When a friend comes to you in distress, what's the first thing that you do? Likely. Likely, you simply listen to them. You simply be with them. Because the, often what happens is, is that you hear uh, of an of a, acute distress and we want to fix it, we want it to go away. But what they actually need is to be completely seen for, for the situation that they're in. Can we do that for ourselves too? Before we get really busy problem solving about everything that needs to be fixed, can we simply be with what is arising so that we can, we can move from this place of insight, of knowing? So just a a few stories about how um, mindfulness and metta are are deeply connected. And I actually, I don't pretend to understand these stories, but they fuel a curiosity for me. So um, a few years ago, my practice drew me to ordain for about six months in Thailand. I actually was interested in finding out what was relevant in 21st century North America w- from this ancient lineage that we that we hold. And so um, uh, I ordained and one of the most profound activities of, that I found um, in that process was going on what's called Pindapot which is alms round. You, um, you Um, are offered the food that that you need each day. In fact, monks and nuns aren't allowed to cook for themselves, they're not allowed to buy food, they're not allowed to store food overnight. So what happens is that at the the crack of dawn, you take off your shoes in order to be connected with the earth, and you start walking with a bowl, that's a little larger than this, and um, people offer you the meal. which is really a beautiful practice it's it's a practice of dhana it's a practice of generosity it's a it's an acknowledgement that um, that uh, the Dharma needs support as the Dharma supports the community itself so um, so it's a beautiful um, uh, experience if any of you ever find yourself in that either in terms of offering or in the in the uh, place of receiving. And I began to notice, uh, I, uh, um, uh, I haven't eaten in the dining room, but if you notice my food patterns, I always ha- take an orange because I love citrus. And um, so often I was given an orange and uh, it had this brilliant taste to it. There is a dining room in the temple that, that um, sometimes cooks meals for the large community or when it rains and it's impossible to go on 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 alms rounds and and what I kept noticing over and over again is that the oranges in the dining room did not taste as good as the oranges from my bowl and I thought I was like having a little mind moment there and so I actually did an experiment on the same day and I um, mindfully ate this orange that I got on Pindapot, and then I went to the dining room and I got an orange and I tasted that as well. And again, that was my experience. And so I went to my preceptor, the, the abbot, and you know, you report all your experiences. And uh, these Asian sort of meditation masters are, um, they, don't, they don't mince words. And, um, and they're kind of grumpy, uh, or at least that's how I experience them. And so he goes, hmm, what you're tasting is your mindfulness and their kindness. And, it, and it's taken me a while to really get that if your mindfulness is... is um, uh, is strong, you can it comes through your senses, this experience of kindness. So the story, the reason I tell it, it came up for me recently because my um, my husband Stephen is going through a period of, of chronic pain and he has he has a rheumatoid arthritis in his right hip. And sometimes he's in so much pain that he can't walk, and so there's you know he's tried he's tried a lot of things and and so one of the things I try to do is to um massage a certain muscle in his thigh that gets really tight, creates more pain and there are times in which we're in conversation, you know talking about things while we're doing it, and there are times in which his pain is so Acute that there's no conversation that's appropriate, and so what I do in the silence is is that I just offer meta. My phrases are are um, may this may this sensation be at ease with speed. Um, may may this pass quickly. The massage always is of benefit. It, you know, it loosens his physical situation. But whenever it's done in silence and I'm, I'm practicing those phrases or those intentions, the relief that he experiences is always longer. So I can't explain it. Deepa Ma was asked whether she's, she was a very highly realized woman from um, uh, I believe Bengal and um, she taught in the West until her passing in the mid-80s and um, uh, she was asked once whether to practice loving-kindness or mindfulness, you know, which brought the most benefit and she said, from my own experience there is absolutely no difference between loving kindness and mindfulness, so sometimes there's a kicker as we bring more and more mindfulness into our moment to moment experience, and that that um, uh, that comes in the form that we realize how much suffering there is in the world that awareness isn't always a pleasant experience we become more aware of how uncomfortable the body is we become more aware of the discomfort in our external conditions we become more aware of the um, difficulties the conflicts, the injustices in the world So it may sound a little trivial, but the invitation is really to start here in this venue and begin with the practice of the itch, which is this discomfort that arises with all of us. And you know, when when that experience of the itch arises, of course, you know, in we are conditioned. To what? Get rid of it. Scratch it. And there is an invitation to see if there is another experience to have with this discomforting situation. What is your experience beyond the itch? What is your experience going through the itch as opposed to getting rid of it? And how many itches in your life do you just get rid of? I mean, there, it's not, it's, the invitation is not to never scratch an itch. The invitation is to explore what is, your, what is, what is the experience of awareness as it goes through unpleasant sensations. And how often do we experience unpleasant sensations, whether we're in our jobs, or our relationships, or in our families? In the relationships that I've had in my life, and I'm talking about partnerships, I always have noticed that in the beginning of those relationships, whenever, whenever there's a, a conflict, it always feels like a make-or-break issue. It always feels like either something's going to happen and I'm going to stay or I'm going to leave. And Over time, knowing that we can get through those, those, um, those make-or-break uh, arisings, it no longer feels as serious. we actually live into seeing the other side of that particular conflict, and it actually loses its, its charge or its energy. Tongpulu Sayado, who is one of the Burmese masters that practiced on the West Coast, has this phrase, if you know it, meaning difficulty or suffering, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round and round. As we sustain this kind, gentle awareness through difficult experience, we get to live into seeing another side to that experience. There was another um, recent article in New York Times about these mindfulness trainings that are going on for um, the military that are being deployed to Iraq. And um, the mindfulness trainings are meant to be preventative of mental stress, PTSD. Um, But this particular passage caught my interest. And um, uh, so this is what's written. One, a veteran of uh, several deployments to Iraq said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxious. The vet said, at one time I might have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy a man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. This training and reconditioning of our mental and physical habits is so integral to reducing suffering in ourselves, but also the world. Because this guy did not just affect that interaction in the restaurant, but he changed his relationship when he goes back into combat in Iraq noticing the impulse, noticing the impulse to react and not acting on it is a very highly evolved human capacity. I don't actually know of any other being that has that capacity to notice the impulse and not act on it, to, noti- to, to meet the experience with kindness, and not need to do anything with it. At East Bay Meditation Center, um, some of the teachers uh, work with um, uh, students in the elementary schools in Oakland, in downtown Oakland. We're right in the middle of downtown. And um, a nine-year-old boy came up to one of the teachers and said, "Um, I found out something new about when I get angry. I don't have to do anything about it. Oh my God. That's a teaching for a 29-year-old as what. Well. This boy is the possibility of the future of Oakland. And for him to begin to internalize this teaching or this, this invitation at such an age not just transforms his life but begins to transform all the people around him. with the first noble truth, this, this truth that there is suffering in the world, in our lives, often it gets really complex, especially with, with injuries or uh, wounds that, that can uh, trigger past memories or past events that actually can magnify the current experience. Sometimes this is called trauma the practice of mindfulness and metta offers a softening into that experience. Noticing, noticing with kindness that that was not able to be offered when those events occurred. So some of you who have um, practiced with me before may have heard this story, but it's actually one of the um, um, one of those moments that changed my period as a monastic and as a monastic um, uh, everybody um, begins to um, take on robes that are the same uh, color and uh, the same form and also we get our, our heads shaved and so when I went to um, get ordained, um, I had had this long hair for a good thirty eight years of my life um, and it was part of my identity. It was part of who I saw myself as and um, and so it was um, interesting because the ordination is a public ceremony. my partner came over and and um, uh, gave offering and witnessed it and and so the Western meditators of the temple were um, were part of the ceremony, and each person cut a lock of hair and then um, the the monk who was doing the shaving took this ancient gillette razor <laughs> that you unscrew from the bottom and put the razor blade at the top. you know this is my this is what my father used to use, and they lathered the he- the the head, and they began. And as the blade began to um, cut the hair, it felt like cutting down redwood trees, um, because uh, um, it was um, it was it was so difficult to cut so much hair. I had these I had these flash I had these flashbacks that had all to do with the story, my story around hair, about arguing with my mother that she wanted me to cut the hair or arguing with my mother because she you know, she didn't want me to ordain, so she didn't want me to cut my hair. Um, there, were, there were all of these flashbacks came ar- around how I grew. And, and uh, at some point, I remembered the reason I grew my hair long, and it was this image, it was this memory of a 13-year-old standing in front of a mirror, Uh, a very unhappy 13-year-old, because this was a 13-year-old that didn't have words for his experience, even though he knew that he was different. And this was a 13-year-old that hated how he looked because he didn't look like anybody around him. We lived in the European-American community. I had very little contact with, with any other communities that, that uh, were Asian or from my background. And as you know, as, as all of us know, the, um, the dynamics around childhood can be quite painful. You know, it's the, the, all the publicity around bullying is is just on the surface of that. So, so my experience was incredibly tortured, and I wanted to change how I looked. And so I began to grow my hair. I remember making that decision. It was a me- it was a memory that was totally buried until the 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 ordination and the and the shaving and as the blade began to cut all of these emotions that i had didn't even know that i had the rage of feeling like that at 13 the rage of of having this rep- repressed memory for 38 years sort of running my life unconsciously the sadness of that that boy. I was I was distraught and I was crying and meanwhile Stephen's taking photographs and <laughs> and you know, people are thinking that I'm crying because I'm so happy and <laughs> But I was just with the experience as it rose, moment to moment. There was nowhere to go. (laughs) Half the hair was gone. There was nothing to do. It's like being in this retreat. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. But, you know, as the moments arise, meeting it with the kindness and the awareness that I wasn't able to when I was 13. I didn't have that capacity. (coughs) Moving through the experience as opposed to around it, which is what the repression did. I was able to be present in ways that I could never have been before. And there was this letting go. This falling away. This, this transformation of that particular aspect of how I held myself. So this letting go, I just want to talk about letting go a little bit. Often, often we talk about letting go as just do it. So letting go... Off is not throwing it away. Letting go is not even just releasing. Letting go is meeting the moment for what it is. And it falls away. For the next moment to arise. It has a natural organicity to it. If you step out of the way, Each time in that whole sequence, you know, I could, each time uh, um, an emotion came up, each time my heart broke, more was revealed about who I was, about who I really was. And I feel that this is where I got, came closer to the truth the truth that I am this beautiful, wonderful person wherever I go in the world. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it gets shaken. But there is this place that I can go to in my, in my lived experience that can ground me. So, you know, I came back after the ordination and um, a lot of people asked me a lot of things. And one of the first questions that my lesbian friends asked was, when did you butch it up? (laughs) And then the next question they asked was, are you going to grow your hair long again? And I said, I don't know if I'll grow my hair long again, but if I do, it won't be for the same reasons those reasons are gone. So I tell you this personal story, not because I think that you will relate to me as a gay man, which, although you might. I don't, I don't say this story because you might relate to me as a person of color, although you might. My purpose in telling this story is to provide a meeting place for all of us who suffer. Because this is not a story about suffering. This is a story about the ending of suffering. Moving through the experience instead of around it or denying it with this, with this gentle meeting of mindfulness and loving kindness. when we meet our experience for what it is, it just doesn't stick. It falls away. When we are aware and mindful, the heart is also open. So about this meeting and letting go, Ajahn Chah, who is the Thai meditation master, the teacher of many of our teachers, has this famous line that you, I know that many of you have heard. Let go a little bit, you have a little bit of freedom. Let go a lot, you have a lot of freedom. Let go completely, and you have complete freedom. What I also love is the following passage, which he says, even though we can't let go yet, we are aware of these states continuously. Being continuously aware of ourselves and our attachments, we come to see that grasping is not the path. We know, but we can't let go. That's 50%. Though we can't let go, we do understand that letting go of these things will bring peace. So justify by cultivating that awareness of letting go even if it's not possible in this moment it's already 50% it's already creating that intention and all of this um in one sense, from one perspective. All of this meeting the moment for what it is and the letting go in a way is the preparation for the big let go, right? When we have to let go of everything. So I just want to... um, um, Say that this story around letting go comes from my father 's recent passing and and just to acknowledge that all of our families and our and our relationships to our parents are different they manifest differently um, but that this was my experience of the big let go in terms of as it as it began to approach he um, during the last Um, during the last six weeks of his life, which was at the beginning of the year, it was such a mutual process of letting go for both him and for me. I could see him struggle, and I was struggling. I was struggling with um, who I wanted him to be, my parent. But I was placed in the role of being a parent to him of this role reversal of taking care of his basic physical needs when uh, almost as a parent would do with for an infant. And I could see his physical struggle for a while, you know, the restlessness, the, the, um, the, uh, the disgruntledness, the crankiness. And I could also see this, this, um, this relaxing. We've used this word before. This relaxing that independently, because uh, by, by a certain time, he actually couldn't communicate. He, um, um, he lost his, his ability to, to communicate through words. Then we had a whiteboard in which he was, was um, uh, writing. And he first lost his ability to um, write in English, and then he lost his ability to write in Chinese. Um, And so there wasn't that much direct communication at the end, but I could see him beginning to let go of all of that, that each phase, there was a struggle, and then there was a relaxation, because there was no choice. And there was a struggle on my part in terms of reorient, reorienting to the lex, next level of care that, that, that was being asked of me and the time that was being asked of me. And then there was a relaxation. And as that progressive movement unfolded over those six weeks, it created this space, this simply meeting these moments, without wanting them to be different and it was so easy to want them to be different. It was so easy to want someone else to do it. It was so easy to wish that he was not experiencing what he was experiencing. But as I think on a non-verbal level we both allowed that, that, We worked with it. We had our own internal process and we we began to relax into that. We created the space so that he could actually move into his process unimpeded and that he allowed us to be there at the very last moment, which was so soft. And I will tell you, at least in this particular story, it was all about the breath. It was all about how the breath rises and falls, and then there's a pause, and the pause gets longer. And then there's a rising and falling, and there's even a longer pause. And, and there's, the, there's the sense that, oh, he's gone. But then the breath rises again and it's like he's coming back alive. And then there was a point in which the pause was three minutes long. And, uh, and I saw two movements and it was a progressive relaxation of his Adam's apple. It just sort of fell once and then twice, and then he was gone. It was really that gentle. And that landscape that, that mindfulness provided was his last teaching to me around how to leave this world. That it was possible to leave this world in this way. Who knows if that will be my situation or not, but that is what will... will remain with me. And, and in one of our groups we talked about how bittersweet this experience, any experience is, but for me this experience was so bitter. It's when the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows come together so close you can't take them apart. That I'm so glad he had this passing as opposed to so many more difficult passages. And any passing is extraordinarily painful. It's that bittersweet and this is, this is life. This is the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. One of the healing aspects that I experience of mindfulness is the fact that we actually can't change anything in our lives that we're not aware of. We can't change anything that we're not aware of. And so the awareness allows that choice, that fundamental choice of Buddhist practice, what is going to lead to more suffering and what is going to lead to less. That's the possibility of healing. That that soldier's story, that choice point. What am I going to do? Annihilate that guy or buy him a beer? It transformed his relationship with that. That story of the ordination, it transformed that relationship that I had with myself. My father's, that story, it transformed my family's relationship with death and dying, that that universal experience that we all have. Why we get to practice together is so profound. The preciousness of our practice is not just the potential for our own personal healing, but for our collective healing as wounded communities because the healing of our own personal experience necessarily affects everyone around us. We don't just practice for ourselves. Ultimately, the heart that is awake wishes kind attention on all experience. The experiences that we like, the experiences that we don't like, even the experiences that we're not that interested in, that, are, that don't hold our attention. The full range of those 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. loving-kindness doesn't ask us to necessarily feel positive or good towards people that have caused us harm or injury in the world. Metta does ask, what is my intention towards their existence as living beings in this world? Just because I feel injured do I want to injure them, really? And will will my suffering be eliminated just because I want to eliminate their experience? This striking out sometimes is called anger and hatred. But also, sometimes it's called revenge. And really, to step back from the personal because we can talk about these experiences so personally and see a larger picture that it is so socially and culturally conditioned. So, um, uh, we were on vacation once in France and and when I was in Paris I went to the Louvre and um, in the Louvre Museum there's that stele from um, ancient Assyria that Hammurabi's laws are written on. This is, this is the, the tablet that says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is the conditioning really of our legal and um, our, um, our justice system. This is conditioning of thousands of years of meeting energy with energy, of meeting violence with violence. And yet, the compassion of wisdom and the wisdom of compassion really speaks for a different path. Eldridge Cleaver writes, the price of hating other human beings is loving oneself less. And of course, Dr. Martin Luther King writes, returning... Violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The invitation of the mindfulness and metta practice is to hold the practice with tenderness itself. So if I can't be loving in this moment, can I be kind? If I can't be kind in this moment, can I be non-judgmental? And if I can't be non-judgmental in this moment, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? we do the best we can with our highest intentions and the least judgment. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You search for the awakened heart, and if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, There's nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished or oppressed. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely opened and exposed. It is the pure raw heart. It is the tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. Written by Trungpa Rinpoche. So regardless of the difficulties in our lives the difficulties that arise in our world around us, in our communities. This practice is so valuable to help us navigate and hold all of that experience. So for the social activists in the room that I know are so important in this world, Sayadaw Upendita writes, another one of our um, Burmese masters and teachers, Practicing mindfulness means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. So I don't know if you know of Michelle Bachelet. She's um, most recently the um, president of Chile. Um, her term just ended, um, um, but she was the first Latin American woman to be democratically a- elected to that uh, to the post of chief of state. Um, and her story is is that at the age of 23, after the um, US-backed coup of, um, that toppled Salvador Allende. She was imprisoned because her father was um, an Air Force General that um, uh, was, um, was against Pinochet. And so his fa- her father was um, tortured and, and he died in prison. But she and her mother were imprisoned and tortured as well. And um, every day she was told that her mother was going to be killed. That was part of the the, um, the torture that that she went through eventually they were exiled to East Germany and they returned after the dictatorship ended in 1990 and she moved progressively through um, through different levels of um, uh, leadership from the Department of Edu- Ministry of Education to the Ministry of defense and and um, she was eventually elected to be their president. And at her inaugural speech, she said, because I was a victim of hate, I, des- I dedicated my life to turning hate into understanding and tolerance. And why not say it, love? I don't know if she's involved with the Dharma, but the Dharma is involved with her. We have awake beings on this planet that can, that bring this, this, this aspect of kindness and love into our collective experience. It is so possible that we can hold a vision of how we see the world to be and make our actions congruent with that vision. So the last story that I'll share comes from um, some of the practitioners, or a practitioner from um, the retreats at, at IMS, and um, she lives in Tallahassee, and um, she's an African American woman that has went to some of the people of color retreats and and brought the loving kindness and mindfulness practice back to Tallahassee and started doing um, meta practice with groups of people under trees in which men were lynched. Tallahassee happens to have one of the highest concentration of former plantations, and so um, it's a it's a his piece of history that that um, is not uh, always seen by the general population and um And so after um, offering that practice for a while in her community, she invited me down to lead a weekend around the compassionate transformation. And the subtitle was, Beginning to Heal the Legacy of Slavery. And people, before I went down, people asked me why why would you be so interested in doing such an intense topic? Because it's intense no matter who you are. And it really, it really got me in touch with the fact that really we are agents of each other's healing in the practice of community. That awareness and loving kindness can be directed not just to our own experiences but the experiences of everyone around us. That the healing and injury that we experience as communities is not just about that particular community. So that the abuse and violence to women in this culture is not just the issue of women. The suffering that, or the discrimination or oppression that um, the lesbian gay community experiences is not just the issue of of that community. It is that we are all interconnected. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This practice invites us to stand in community and in Sangha with all of those who suffer in order that we may all heal and cloak each other with kindness. and eventually move through the experience. Can you feel that impact collectively that the Dharma can offer? Each time that you practice awareness and kindness, you are transforming your world, but also you're transforming the world. That it's not just about our personal practice, It's not just about our personal enlightenment. It's not just about our personal salvation. There is a direct connection between what you are doing in this room, creating that sense of of peace in your life with how we are in the world, creating the peace in the world that so desperately needs it. that is the magnitude of our practice that is the collective journey that we're on and it is possible because the buddha said he would not teach that which is not he w- he would not teach that which we could not do and freedom is possible Thank you for your attention. So, the invitation is really to sink back into your experience in this moment. Just allowing the words to fade. Returning to the silence. Returning to awareness. And the possibility of freedom in this moment.